Hi, it's Allison, producer here at On My Mind. Diane's out this week, so we're bringing you an interview from our archives. This one is a conversation with former President Jimmy Carter, who's currently receiving hospice care at his home in Georgia. Carter joined Diane in the studio on January 13, 1993, his first of 12 appearances on The Diane Reem Show. Bill Clinton was about to take office, and Carter had just published his latest book, Turning Point. Their conversation that day covered how he got his start in politics, his relationship with the press, and why he says it can take more courage to maintain peace than to send troops into battle. The interview has been edited for length and clarity. Good morning and welcome to the Diane Ream Show on 88.5 FM. Until the 1992 election, just one Democrat had been elected president in a quarter of a century. He was Jimmy Carter. Raised on a peanut farm in Plains, Georgia, Mr. Carter became president after serving in the state Senate and one term as governor. His campaign for the presidency became a model for outsider candidates on how to build support at the grassroots roots level. But being an outsider was a mixed blessing in Washington. President Carter personally negotiated the Camp David Middle East Peace Agreement. He lost the presidency to Ronald Reagan in 1980 in the midst of the Iran hostage crisis, with voters deeply unhappy about the state of the economy. Since leaving office, Mr. Carter has devoted his efforts to a number of causes. He's worked to promote fair and democratic elections around the world. He and his wife, Rosalind, have helped build housing units as part of Habitat for Humanity. And he's launched the Atlanta Project to improve the quality of life in America's inner cities. President Carter has just written his seventh book. It's called Turning Point. A Candidate, a State, and a Nation Come of Age. It's an account of how his first election was almost stolen from him, what it told about politics in the South, and how it changed his life. President Carter is here in the studio with me. Good morning, Mr. President. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you, Diane. I've been looking forward to it. Thank you. You uh, say in your book that the experience you had when you first ran for public office in 1962 shaped the future of your life. At the time, the so-called county unit system had just been done away with. Set the stage for us. Help us understand what was happening. Okay, well, a lot of people don't understand historically how the South and a few other places could have perpetuated total racial segregation in spite of the outcome of the war between the states and the constitutional amendments that guaranteed equality. Uh, but part of that uh, secret was embedded in what is known as a county unit system, where votes were cast not by people but by counties. And the counties were weighted heavily to favor the rural areas, not only in Georgia but in other states like Minnesota, Wisconsin, where early settlers wanted to retain control for themselves and not shift the control to Madison, Wisconsin, or to Milwaukee. So this was the way it was done. And in Georgia and in other states, it was not only a, uh, an emphasis on uh, rural domination but also on white 
domination to the exclusion of black citizens and also on Democrats. There were no Republican primaries at all in Georgia back in those days. <clears throat> so it was a turning point in, 19, uh, in, in 1962 when the Supreme Court finally ruled that there had to be an equality of weight given to votes cast by individual people. Uh, when that happened, I was uh, naive I never had been involved in politics before. I was dedicated to the public school system. I was chairman of the school board. I was eager to see the South get away from its racial segregated life. And I thought, boy, this is a wonderful opportunity now to have honest, open, free, democratic, uh, equal elections. So I decided to run for the, for the state Senate at the last minute because the Supreme Court forced the Georgia legislature to set up special election. I only had two weeks to run. And uh, on election day, I came in ahead, except when we got to a tiny county, the smallest one in Georgia, uh, Quitman County, in a, in a county seat of Georgetown. One vote, by the way, in Quitman County equaled 99 votes Ugh. in Atlanta, Georgia. That's how the great disparity existed, and it was totally legal. So the, the political boss of Quitman County had a very valuable two electoral votes in his hands that he could deliver to anyone, to a governor, to a lieutenant governor, uh, Georgia Supreme Court justice, his local district attorney, his local trial judge, uh, as, at his disposal, provided he could control the votes. And his name was Joe Hurst. And, he, and I confronted him. I didn't know him ahead of time. Uh, this is a little county over on the uh, Chattahoochee River right across from Eufaula, Alabama. And so I went into that county early in the morning to see what was going on. There were no voting booths. Oh. Uh, and uh, there was a small table. And Joe Hurst and his henchman, whose name was Doc Hammond, were standing there uh, carefully observing every vote cast. Joe Hurst uh, was a state legislator. He was the only member of the state legislature who had a full-time state job. A special bill had been passed to let him have this uh, honor. Uh, he was a chairman of the uh, local Democratic Committee, which had total control of all elections, and the final judicial appeal had to be made to him in any contested election. His wife was a welfare director. It was the only county in the uh, only place in the nation where all the welfare checks for the entire county came to one post office box, and Joe Hurst and his wife handed out the welfare checks to families that they agreed should be on the welfare rolls. The only thing he asked was that if they vote the way he told them. So how do you know if a person votes the way you tell them? You can't do it with a secret ballot. So there were no such things as secret ballots. And he carefully told the people, do not vote for Jimmy Carter, vote for this man, Homer Moore. He's my candidate in this election. And he watched them as they voted. Uh, after they voted, they put their ballots in a big pasteboard box. It happened to be a liquor box, whiskey box, and it had a five-inch open hole in the top, and he would very freely take the ballots out, look at them, change them if he thought they needed changing. And he did this blatantly because uh, he was impervious to uh, condemnation or to criticism. Uh, there was no way that he would ever be convicted of a crime since he controlled the district attorney and the local trial court judge. Didn't it even go beyond that to uh, dead voters in alphabetical order? Well, at the end of the day, uh, 
I was ahead. I went over uh, after complaining during the day, but uh, and I couldn't even get any reporters from the Columbus newspapers to pay any attention to it. This is the way it was always done in Quitman County, they told me. But at the end of the day, uh, only 330 people had voted in uh, Georgetown in Quitman County, and there were 421 ballots in the box, 118 of whom voted uh, alphabetically, <laughs> a number of whom were dead or in prison, or who lived in distant places and who later said they had never voted absentee ballots. There were no absentee ballots in that election. So it was a blatant theft of the election. I was absolutely astonished. And we went through a torturous contest in the Georgia uh, political party, Democratic Party, and also in the court system that is almost unbelievable. If anybody wrote a novel and put all this complexity in it, people would say the, the plot was too contrived. Nothing like this could really happen. And and this was the um, not only a turning point in my life, which is where the book comes title comes from, but it was a turning point in the South. Because with the end of the county unit system, eventually there was a way for a moderate voter who lived in Atlanta, big cities, or all our black citizens, to let their voices and influence be heard in shaping legislation. I was uh, <clears throat> surprised uh, reading the opening portions of the book um, to see you describe yourself as a naive 38-year-old farmer and a small-town businessman um, <laughs> and, and to recognize that feeling that way about yourself, you would even venture forth into politics considering the state of politics in that state at that time. Well, I had been... <clears throat> In the, in the U.S. Navy for 11 years, I was a submarine officer, had come home, got a, a nice little business going. And, and I didn't hold pub, uh, elective office, but I was appointed by the grand jury to be the chairman of the uh, county school board. And I had seen the public school system endangered. Even our moderate uh, political leaders, Ernest Vandiver, who ran for governor, his campaign focus was that he would raise one finger and say, no, not one, which meant that not a single black child would ever enter a public school classroom alongside a white child. He would close down the public schools first. This distressed me. And so when the halcyon days of uh, one man, one vote came along, I decided that I would get in the state Senate, which was totally reconstituted, that I would ask to be on the education committee and do my part to help protect the public school system. That's how innocent and naive and idealistic I was. But I didn't anticipate, uh, particularly after the uh, Supreme Court ruling was implemented, that there would be anything like uh, like what I had to face. I must say, though, you knew that um, you were being criticized for your stand on uh, your relations with uh, African Americans, uh, with blacks in Georgia, that people felt that you were somehow uh, against the white domination, and they weren't happy with you for it. No, they weren't. But I was well known in my own county, which was the largest county. And my family had been there, well, the ones who were born in the 1700s in my family and Rosen's family were buried there and all of our families had been there. And I had done, uh, you know, a, a good job as a businessman and 
and I had served honorably on the local school board. So I did fairly well in my own county. Also, I, I had a, a wide range of friends among the farmers who brought their peanuts to my warehouse, who bought fertilizer and seed from me, uh, who brought their cotton to my cotton gin, and, and that sort of thing. So I knew a lot of people there. Also, I might say that my opponent in the race was a totally honest person. The only uh, thing that happened was that in this little tiny county uh, is where the deciding votes were, were wound up to be cast. A few days before the election, this uh, uh, local boss called my opponent's campaign manager, Sam Singer, and said, Sam, I'm going to stuff the ballot box uh, against Jimmy Carter. And Sam Singer said, uh, Joe, Joe Hurst, I don't think it's necessary. I think we've got a good campaign. We've got a good chance to win anyhow. And he said, well, uh, we always stuff the ballot box, and I don't want my people to get out of practice. <laughs> This is all on tape recordings. I've got all this. It's all documented. Well, that's the way he was. And, and he didn't even consider the fact that anyone would stand up against him. But when I finally did, the people in that county who had long suffered his, under his domination rallied around me. And uh, I promised them on my word of honor I would not back down. And uh, during the next, I only had two weeks before the general election when this was all to be certified. In two weeks' time, I lost 22 pounds. I had I'd never rarely went to bed. I, I was not a lawyer. I studied the Georgia election laws. I went around to everybody in that county to get uh, affidavits certifying legally what had happened. It was a very difficult but also very exciting time. A reporter for the Atlanta Journal named John Pennington uh, played a big part because uh, I gather he brought the story of what was going on to public attention. Yeah. He was a hero, really, of the book. Um, I couldn't get any uh, media attention near my home. As I said, the, the Columbus newspaper, which dominated that area, the reporter came out, his name was Lou Teasley, and Luke, Luke Teasley told me, this is the way it's always done in Quitman County. And most of the Democratic leaders who had just been elected, the new governor and so forth, thought I was just a sorehead farmer who wouldn't accept my legitimate defeat. And uh, so they didn't pay any attention to me at all. At the state convention I went, nobody would even listen to me. But finally, this reporter came down quite uh, skeptical, John Pennington, and he on his own went into Quitman County and began to look at the records of elections there, and he eventually uh, brought attention to my campaign uh, results uh, with top front-page headlines in the Atlanta Journal, which swept the Georgia political scene. Everybody was interested in this dead people voting, you know. And so uh, that public attention brought to my case is what eventually rallied enough support for me to, to prevail. I wonder how that made you feel about the press uh, then and since, <laughs> Mr. President. <laughs> well, obviously the press was uh, heroic then. And uh, and I, say, I have to say later on as well, when I got involved ultimately in the presidential race and went to, uh, say, Iowa, which is the first test, test uh, site for my campaign, nobody was paying any attention to me. And then when I uh, worked very hard in Iowa and very shrewdly, I think, and uh, came in first in Iowa, it was totally amazing to the uh, political establishment and the, and the press exalted my campaign more than it deserved because I had won such a surprising uh, victory. So I basked there again in the uh, attention given to me by the press because, in effect, I was a, a Southern uh, curiosity 
Jimmy Carter is with me, our 39th president of the United States and author of a new book. It's his seventh. It's called Turning Point, A Candidate, a State, and a Nation Come of Age. Uh, legal segregation is a thing of the past, uh, Mr. President, but in many ways we have a society today that's segregated on an economic basis. Um, talk about what you are trying to achieve with your Atlanta project. Well, most of the Carter Center's work is still done overseas, holding elections, negotiating peace, uh, ceasefires, uh, immunizing children, eradicating disease. Um, we... Uh, have become increasingly aware, however, that our society is now almost as segregated as it was 30 years ago when this book took place. It's not segregated anymore by legal uh, racism, but it's segregated between rich people on the one hand and poor on the other. The rich people are not those that have a big bank account, but they're the ones that make the decisions in society. They're the ones that have a decent home and who have uh, a modicum of education and a prospect for a job. They get uh, health care when they are sick, and the neighborhoods are protected by the police. They are the ones that have um, a feeling that the police and the judicial system are on our side. Those are the rich people. But we have uh, neighbors who don't have any of those things, a home, education, health care, job prospects, and who don't feel that the police are on their side. And, and so there's re there are really two Atlantas. Atlanta has wonderful racial relationships at the top level. Our mayor is black. Most of the city council members are black, work harmoniously with the white leadership. But there's another Atlanta that's basically ignored. And so I think that our society now is just as segregated as it was before. And the, and the element of hopelessness is as pervasive. Although the great society programs and some of the ones that I instituted, as well as others, uh, have been designed to uh, give uh, a better life to people who live in low-income neighborhoods, that is not taking place. In, in Washington, D.C., for instance, where we are now, the, um, in the last five years, there's been more than a 700% increase in homicides among young Washingtonians. In Atlanta, a 300% increase yeah. in crimes of violence. Ten times as many homeless people in Atlanta as there were when I left the White House. So. We've decided that somewhere in God's world, there has to be a proof that uh, these blights on our society, our inner cities, can be corrected. And we're determined and very hopeful that in the Atlanta Project we can do so. There are a few uh, elements in the Atlanta Project that we've instituted that don't exist prevalently in the country. One is that we're giving the poor people in the neighborhoods, we call them cluster communities, full control or power or influence over the programs that are designed to help them. They know what works and what doesn't work and so forth. The second thing is that we are letting the uh, churches, we have 10,000 churches in Atlanta, plus the synagogues and mosques, have a much more intimate relationship with the poor people and convincing them that it's not dangerous to their lives to go where people are in need. And another very important thing is that we're forming partnerships between our major corporations and the communities that are in trouble. Now a quick break. Hi. 
Hi, it's Diane. Join me for my next book club event on Wednesday, March 27th at 1 p.m. Eastern. I'll talk with Michael Crummy about his new novel, The Adversary. Find out more and register at dianereen.org slash book club. And we're back. Here's the rest of Diane's 1993 conversation with former President Jimmy Carter. Mr. Preston, as you look back at that 1962 election and the kinds of shenanigans that were going on then, since then, of course, you've traveled all over the world monitoring various elections. How have you then compared what's happened elsewhere and what's happening here in this country in our election process with what was going on back then in 1962. I've never seen any uh, election in a foreign country as bad as it was in Georgetown, Georgia in 1962 with, with the blatant fraud perpetrated all through election day. However, uh, at that time in Georgia, there was, uh, and other states, there was a feeling that the county unit system being legal was okay, that the separate but equal ruling of the Supreme Court is the way it should be. And, and so we accepted things that, that in retrospect, are blatantly in, uh, contrary to justice and fairness and, and so forth. We still have the same problem in our own country. We had, for instance, the Carter Center did, a group of Latin Americans come in last November for our presidential election, they could not believe how unjust the opportunity is in our country for a person to seek the presidency. I'll just give you a quick example. We take it for granted. In no other country do candidates have to pay for the right to present their views to the public on television. In Europe, in Latin America, Asia, Africa, Nowhere. We would not possibly approve an election that didn't guarantee equal access to the television and radio to people in that country. In this country, it depends entirely on how much money you have. If you don't have 50 million bucks in your pocket like Ross Perot did to buy his own time on TV, or if you don't have the PAC committees and contributors as do the Democrat and Republican candidates, then you cannot possibly seek to be the president in any with any hope of, su- of success. So the political system in this country, you feel, is contributing that much further to the economic disparity, which again becomes political disparity. Exactly. And, and after the election is over, you know, we have what is in effect legal bribery in political cam- contributions for the members of the Congress. Uh, Bill Clinton, one of his biggest problems is gonna, that he ha- will have to face in uh, health reform is dealing with the lobbyists who are protecting the uh, income level of people who own hospitals and who deliver medical care. And they will pay, legally, members of Congress as much money as they can to vote their way. And this is all accepted by the American people as part of our political system, but it's, it's uh, patently unjust and contrary to the best interest of people who don't have money to buy their way into fair legislation. 
One last question, and then we'll go to the phones. This having to do with your own state of Georgia, Mr. President, I gather the governor, Zell Miller, is attempting to bring about a change in that state's flag so it will no longer reflect the Confederacy. Where are you on that? <laughs> I think Zell Miller will be, uh, I think he'll prevail. Uh, I noticed that in Alabama, the uh, judge has, has stricken down the, the uh, right of Alabamans to fly the Confederate flag over their state capitol. There's an ancient uh, constitutional provision that he discovered that said only two flags can fly <clears throat> above the state capitol. That's the American flag and the Alabama state flag. So I would guess that we'll go back to the uh, flag in Georgia that we had before this same period. Uh, this book is about 1962, Turning Point. In 1964, we had a very... Uh, uh, conservative governor. In 1954, we had a very conservative governor elected named Marvin Griffin, who changed Georgia's historic flag and put in the Confederate flag as part of our flag. So if Zell Miller, our governor, is, uh, is successful, which I think he will be, in removing the Confederate's emblem from the Georgia flag, we'll just go back to the uh, pre-civil rights days and get the Georgia flag without the uh, emblem of the Confederacy. Do you feel he has enough support within the state legislature to get that change? Well, he made a very emotional speech just yesterday appealing to the legislators to remove this symbol of racism. And there's no doubt, this is, you know, if this flag went back 100 or 200 years in Georgia, it would be a different matter, but it, it just goes back to the civil rights confrontation when a segregationist governor changed our flag to make it include the emblem of the Confederacy. So it, historically, we're going back, if Selma is successful in, in Georgia, to the flag that we had uh, more historically, and I think that he will be successful. We'll go to the phones now. David, you're on the air. Hey, Mr. President, how are you? Fine, David. Uh, sir, uh, I want to ask you a brief question before I do. I just want to say that I'm proud of the way you've conducted yourself since being a uh, president. Um, Habitat for Humanity and the Carter Center and the Atlanta Project. But I, I want to um, ask you briefly, after the Vietnam War, there was what gripped the Pentagon and the nation, the Vietnam Syndrome, a tendency to disengage from third world conflicts. But since the Reagan years, Grenada, Libya, Panama, Iraq the tragic uh, bombing of the Marines in Lebanon and now Somalia. Uh, what do you think, now that the Cold War is over, uh, is, should be the proper role of the United States in third world conflicts, I guess particularly now Somo Somalia and Bosnia, but uh, more a broad over, overall goal uh, of our foreign policy in third world conflicts? Well, well I don't put Somalia in the same uh category as, for instance, a Contra war, where we precipitated 35,000 casualties in Nicaragua by supporting and financing uh, a war within that country, or when we invaded Panama and killed a thousand people in an effort to capture Noriega, when we invaded uh, Grenada, when the Prime Minister was in Washington trying to find some way to negotiate peacefully the differences between us and so forth. So I don't put Somalia in the same boat. Um, but we've been, we are known, this country is known throughout the world now as the country most inclined toward military action in uh, troubled areas. I hope that this will change. Uh, but I think that the United Nations uh, will play a stronger role. I think the U.S. operations, if under the aegis of the, of the United Nations, are more likely to be proper, uh, 
rather than just a unilateral invasion of another country or the precipitation of a war that we finance. And, and I, I would hope that if we should decide to do anything of a military nature in Bosnia to uh, establish uh, a ceasefire and enforce it in Sarajevo or to uh, forcibly deliver supplies to starving people or to open up the uh, concentration camps, that it would be under United Nations sponsorship with approval of the, of the UN Security Council, and, and I would not want to see U.S. troops be in the forefront. I think that we should give support, but the uh, troops in the, in the forefront, the planes in the air, should be European and not American. Thanks for your call, David. Let's take a caller from Rockville. Naomi, you're on the air. Good morning, Good morning. and thank you for giving me the opportunity to uh, talk to President Carter. Sir, I've been wanting to tell you for 12 years how sorry I am that you lost re-election. But I would also like to say that the silver lining on that cloud is the wonderful work you've done since then. And I'd like to thank you for your activities and hope that you continue them. Well, I will continue them. That's a nice thing to say. I continue them, by the way, not as a sacrifice or public service, but because it's what we really find to be exciting and unpredictable and adventurous and gratifying. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, you know, when we build a house working side by side with a, one of the poorest families in America and see the house finished uh, after four and a half days of, uh, of partnership work and the family move in, you know, that is a great and wonderful vacation for us, even though the work is very hard. But thank you for your comment. And thanks for calling, Naomi. Mr. Carter, one of the recurrent themes during the campaign and the uh, transition was the Clinton camp's talk about avoiding some of the mistakes that you are perceived to have made during your presidency and avoiding the sort of Carter one-term presidency. That can't have been easy for you to hear. (laughs) Well, I don't think it came from from Clinton himself. It comes mostly from news reporters who are analyzing uh, the campaign who uh, made it very clear in 1975 and 76 that I could not possibly win and who last spring said that Bill Clinton was through, that there was no way that he had a chance to be successful. So those prognosticators and analysts uh, who make their living writing uh, very scholarly analyses on the editorial pages of a newspaper don't bother me all that much. If if you go back and look at the record uh, of my uh, administration, I had the same battening average with the Congress that uh, Lyndon Johnson or John Kennedy had, about a 65% uh, success record. I probably spent more time in uh, working intimately with the Congress both before I was elected and after I uh, was sworn in as president, as anyone has ever done. And and we made some mistakes, obviously. And, uh, Such the, as? Well, the main thing that, that was a mistake politically was not bombing Tehran uh, in order to try to extricate our hostages from from te- from Iran, but uh, eventually uh, every hostage came home safe and free. Uh, our country was never embarrassed about the way we treated the hostage crisis. We never tried to bribe the Iranians to let our hostages go. Um, so these are the kinds of things that that uh, have been criticized. Uh, also, you, do you think had you bombed? Tehran, that somehow the perception of you as a leader might have been changed oh, and that so. could have affected the election rather yes, dramatically? Yes, I think so. The, the most popular thing that an incumbent president can do is to go to war because you take off the mantle of a troubled uh, 
compromising civilian administrator and you put on the mantle of the commander-in-chief of the powerful American forces that uh, almost inevitably are successful. If those uh, efforts are unsuccessful, as is the case in Vietnam, there is an adverse reaction, but the first response to a military action that survives for months is, is euphoria in the country that we're demonstrating the strength of our country and also the personal strength and courage of an incumbent president. In my opinion, which is contradicted by many people, sometimes it takes a lot more courage to maintain peace than it does to send our forces uh, into battle. Uh, you might want to talk a bit about the aftermath of the Camp David Accords and what we see now in terms of attempts and failures at uh, an effort to bring about peace in the Middle East? Well, for about for eight years, primarily when President Reagan was in office, there was really no sustained effort made to rejuvenate the peace process. I've been very pleased to see that, that Secretary Baker and, and President Bush have at least got talks started again. And uh, I have to say, though, <clears throat> that the prospects for success are dim unless the United States plays a strong mediation role. In my opinion, having traveled frequently and, and, and extensively in the Middle East, the people would rather see the U.S. play a strong role, not just say, here's a room you can go in, <clears throat> the Israelis and the Palestinians, you can go in and talk if you want to, I hope we will, and that's the end of it. I think the, the, we, we study the technique of mediation at the Carter Center assiduously. And, and what I used at Camp David and what should be used, I think, in the future is, is a single document process where the mediator prescribes what uh, is considered to be the best approach to a, a final solution. And you go back and forth between the negotiating parties, and each time you find a common ground, and then you try to get some compromises evolved. In each case, uh, the uh, advantages to be derived by both sides have to be exceeding the concessions made. And you have to realize that uh, any agreement has to be unanimously and voluntarily accepted. And also you have to realize that both sides have to win. You can't have a winner and a loser. Six months after Camp David, when we finally completed the um, peace treaty between Israel and Egypt, there's no doubt that both sides won. And that treaty in 1979 in April, I think, we signed it, uh, has been meticulously observed by both sides. So what gives me hope in the Middle East, I'm not naive about it, but what gives me hope is that the people of the Middle East want peace. The Israelis want peace, the Palestinians want peace, the Syrians, the Lebanese, the Jordanians want peace. The obstacle are the leaders who need to have some encouragement, I would say including and perhaps uh, necessarily from Washington, to make those small concessions that can lead to greater advantages for their people. Tom, you're on the air. Morning, Diane. Morning. Um, my question just concerns the uh, emphasis on human rights in uh, President Carter's foreign policy. When Reagan came to power, he sort of castigated it, but then we had uh, Alexander Yakovlev recently say that they were far more terrified of Mr. Carter's emphasis on human rights than they were on the missiles and so forth. Is that sort of a vindication? Well, I never have felt a need for vindication. You know, the human rights uh, commitment that I made was, was clearly spelled out during my own campaign before I really became famous, based on... Um, substantially on the benefits that I saw come to all Americans when the civil rights movement was basically successful. And, and we made sure that every ambassador in the world was my personal human rights representative. 
uh, that every embassy on earth uh, was a haven for people who suffered human rights abuses from their own leaders. And uh, no leader ever came to the White House without knowing that human rights was going to be on the agenda. Uh, I, I was taken aback when President Reagan was first inaugurated and Jean Kirkpatrick was his representative. The first place she went was down to reassure the, uh, the military junta in Argentina that the Carter Human Rights Days were over. She went then over to Chile to meet with uh, President Pinochet to give him the same uh, report from the Reagan administration. And the first two leaders that came to visit President Reagan in the White House were people that I would not let come to the United States. One was Marcos from um, the Philippines. The other one was President Chun from South Korea. I, I didn't invite them to the White House because I didn't approve of their human rights policies. But I think our country is dedicated to human rights. And I think after those first early days that President Reagan did a much better, had a much deeper commitment to human rights uh, than he did at the beginning of his administration. All right, Tom, thanks for your call. Mr. President, your wife, Rosalind, appeared on 60 Minutes uh, during the Reagan years, and I was very struck by something she said at the time, especially considering our conversation today about racial inequality and economic disparity in this country. Um, she was asked by uh, Morley Safer what she felt about Mr. Reagan and his presidency and how they had affected this country. And her response was something like, I fear he has made us more comfortable with our prejudices. And I wondered what your own reaction to that comment was, whether you shared her views and whether you think there has been uh, sort of an atmosphere of racism engendered in this country by our political leaders. Well, I think we have to guard against the uninherent tendency that each one of us individually has uh, of prejudice toward people who are different from us. We, we tend to think that they are not equal to us uh, intellectually or morally or in the eyes of God. And, and that's a, a, a human trait against which we personally should guard. And it can be uh, stimulated, obviously, by the attitude of political leaders. Uh, one of the President Reagan's great attractions was that he made us feel that everything was okay the way we felt was okay, and uh, the deficit was okay, and so forth. And, and that, was, uh, that still is a great uh, personal and political attribute that makes him uh, popular. I, I've changed my mind a lot, too. You know, I, I think we have a tendency to feel, for instance, that homeless people are in inferior. If they worked as hard as I did, they'd have a house. If they were as ambitious uh, or in as intelligent, as I, they would probably have a house. If they cared as much about their family, they'd have a decent place for the family to live. We, we work every, just one week a year, we build homes side by side with the poorest families in, in America who don't have a decent home. And, and we've gotten to know uh, numbers of them, dozens of them. They're just as intelligent as I am. They're just as ambitious as I am. They're just as hardworking as I am. They care just as much about their families as I do. And, and to see their lives transformed because they have, for the first time, a chance to do something that is successful, that is help build a house, is really uh, emotional in, in, in the observer. 
a family that may have gone three or four generations without ever finishing high school. No one ever finished high school. They move into a decent house that they helped build. And within two weeks, they're deciding which college their kids will attend. It's, it's a transforming experience just to have a chance in life and to have some self-respect. And, and I think breaking down those barriers that we ourselves erect and, and honor is a, is a challenge for our society. That's what I tried to emphasize in this book, um, Turning Point, looking at, at ancient and very intriguing history, but also to point out that the same kind of, um, of immunity to the needs or suffering of others is a problem in our own country, but it's not a hopeless case. We can do something about it. You will be here for the inauguration next week? Yes. We'll be coming in the evening before. We'll be uh, at the inauguration, and then we'll leave that afternoon. I'm looking forward to that, uh, Diane, because uh, after Clinton is sworn in, uh, for the first time in my life, I will meet a Democratic president. Former President Jimmy Carter, our 39th. He's the author of a new book. It's called Turning Point, A Candidate, A State, and A Nation Come of Age. It's been an honor to have you here. Thank you. I've enjoyed it, Diane. Thank you. That was Diane's 1993 interview with Jimmy Carter. He's currently receiving hospice care at his home in Georgia. And that's all for today. We welcome your feedback and suggestions. You could find us on Facebook and Twitter or send us an email, drpodcast at wamu.org. Our theme music is composed by Jim Brumberg and Ben Landsverk of Wonderly. The show is produced by me, Allison Brody. Our engineer today is Kellen Quigley. Thanks for listening.